Hello, Buddhist geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I just wanted to share a brief thought before you start with this week's episode. Many of you may not realize this, but Buddhist Geeks is a 501c3 educational nonprofit. We made the switch to being a nonprofit at the end of last year after a couple years of planning this, and we're really happy to have switched to an organizational form that seems to fit our mission and vision much more. And we've set a goal to raise $20,000 upfront, as well as a recurring amount of $1,000 a month through our Patreon account. And we're using this money to help fund our core operations. And if you want to learn a little bit more about what we're using the money for, what we're up to, what we're doing, the kind of impact that we've been having, you can go to BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash give and check it out. And on that page, um, you could make a small recurring gift. This could be as little as $2 a month. Uh, Or if you're in a position to make a more significant tax-deductible contribution, you can also give a one-time amount there. So again, this is at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. We really appreciate your support. Um, As long as we have it, we're going to continue to do our best to push the edge on exploring how Buddhism in the 21st century can really serve one another, can really shine a light on each other. And uh, again, we just really appreciate you tuning in to listen to uh, these explorations and also for your support. Take care. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. I wanted to go to something else, and that was this article that you that you wrote, which initially grabbed my interest, and that was uh, virtual reality in the tea ceremony. And now I haven't done the tea ceremony, uh, the Japanese tea ceremony. I love tea, and I've I've certainly done the Chinese style, the Gung Fu style of tea. But um, uh, you know, the the Japanese tea ceremony, you know, when it's really done in its full way, it's like a contemplative practice, from what I understand, and. Um, you mentioned a little earlier the idea of sometimes we need to go to this, the, the extreme before we can push to the other side. Um, and, and you mentioned that that actually comes from the, the I Ching, you know, suggests that uh, any extreme condition when pushed to its limit initiates the reversal uh, into its opposite condition. And you suggest in that same article that vir- the virtual reality that hosts the tea ceremony uh, may well be the pivot point. Um, and that really struck me, the pivot point. Um, and and you're in there, you're talking about the pivot point between the virtual reality and, 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 our, and, our, and our experience of nature. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the, the, the idea, this thought experiment of, of doing a tea ceremony in VR and why that would be a pivot point in some way. I've always loved that aspect of the tea ceremony in the traditional Japanese way, where there was a, a doorway in the tea hut or the tea house that you would have to basically crawl through. You'd have to get on your hands and knees and come into it. Uh, There was this kind of submission and recognition of our physical selves and the humility to to bend ourselves, to adapt to the tea ceremony. Mm. It always made me think this was really a powerful 
a powerful tool and a wonderful tradition. And, and I've, I've been in tea ceremonies in, Japanese, in the formal Japanese tea ceremony. However, uh, very interesting to me was giving this talk, uh, the virtual reality and the tea ceremony in, in Kyoto. Um, I was near there with, uh, invited by uh, Japanese professors, and I gave a talk at a industrial complex of Sony and you know the large, some of the large uh, uh, tech companies in in Japan. And at that complex, uh, after I gave the talk, uh, you know, trying to inspire the Japanese culture to remember their own uh, wonderful contributions. They took me to the back of one of the very large, beautiful modern buildings and showed me a little hut in the back that was for the tea ceremony. But the hut itself uh, was never used, <laughs> according to the, the uh, guide that I had. He said it was just, just something ignored by the uh, company. So uh, it, this was... a kind of a realization that there was a process going on, a global process that would be the inversion that, you know, the, that Japan was learning the West so well that they were forgetting their tea ceremony traditions. And, and on the other hand, it was here as a Westerner who's fascinated by it and thinks maybe we need to do that. Yeah. And, uh, wishing to throw it to the Japanese, but they don't want to have anything to do with it. That's so fascinating. Yeah, no, that that's such an interesting observation too, because uh, you know the history of Buddhism so much has that same flavor of these Eastern teachers coming, you know, to the U.S. in the fifties and sixties, and all the Westerners being so fascinated, you know, by Eastern uh, traditions and practice, and at the same time, it becoming like you said, like more like of a like a, an unused appendage, uh, you know, in the East where it's like, well, we don't really need this anymore. And it kind of withers away um, a bit over there. Um, so that, that's really interesting. The tea ceremony has gone through something similar. When you say it's a pivot point, like what, were you talking about actually doing a virtual tea ceremony? Like, as, like, like would, that somehow, would that somehow like kind of highlight how ridiculously disconnected we are from nature? Or what, what, how does that work, the, the pivot part? Well, I think that's partially uh, what you suggest is partially uh, true. Uh, on the other hand, I had a time with a wonderful man there, a professor of philosophy, uh, Professor Ohashi, uh, who in Kyoto took me to this famous garden uh, called Ryoanji. And it's a basically a Zen garden where there are stones. I think there are 17, maybe 15, 17 stones. Uh, in in a raked sand, you may have seen pictures of it sure. very frequently seen. And we uh, spent some time there. It was fascinating because uh, we were sitting on this wooden uh, wooden porch type of thing where we sit and meditate. And uh, just some of his comments I'd like to pass along are very interesting about that meditational process because it, it, it certainly made me think about virtual reality and what, what we might be able to do with it. Uh, so he, we were sitting there for quite a while and he made the comment, Professor Ohashi said, if you sit here quietly enough, you can see the stones begin to move. And I wasn't sure what he meant exactly. 
I mean, these are big rocks. Some of them, it's it's like big islands or continents in an ocean of sand. Um, and of course, it's it's the Japanese power of miniaturization, like the bonsai trees. Everything is reduced. Here is the world reduced to an ocean with continents or islands. So sitting there quietly and watching your breath or just feeling your position and quieting down, what happens is your eyes begin to note the different rocks and they bounce your eyes, just the, your attention begins to bounce among the different rocks, like almost like a pinball machine in a sense. You're going from one part of the garden to another. The quieter you get, the more you perceive that the movement is in you and that the stillness in you is the background against which you can perceive the movement. So the rocks move, well, your attention moves to see the different rocks. And the movement, however, is in us. And so is the stillness as the background against which we can perceive the movement. Now, when I use the virtual reality headset, I get a very similar experience out of it. It's a kind of a shock. And I become very much aware suddenly of my head movement, my, my body movement, and I'm aware of how it's connecting to this new environment. So there's a, I think, a big, powerful meditative process that we can begin to launch as we explore virtual reality. It can become a tool for deepening our spiritual traditions. Uh, I love Thomas Moore's uh, new book called Making a Religion of One's Own, or simply a religion of one's own, because I think this is what we have to do now as individuals. We must involve ourselves in the shaping of this new culture that we're creating. So the responsibility is not on the Japanese, even though they may have invented the tea ceremony. Really, the tea ceremony is, is our job because we're inventing the technology. Well, of course, we have Japanese colleagues, Chinese colleagues. They can help us, too. And I'm sure they, they have access to some, some of the uh, resources and scholarship that uh, we don't have and that may help us. Interesting. Yeah, there, there's another another line in that uh, that same article that I really appreciated. Is you 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 wrote that cultures grow deeper um, by adapting themselves to what they adopt, and um, that that seems to be in part what this experiment is about. You know, the idea of uh, adapting ourselves to the tea ceremony and in in a new environment. It's an incredible love to be able to reach the level of culture where we are have the luxury of being able to entertain concepts that at first seem very alien to our own culture. Yes. To be able to reach and incorporate in a more holistic way what's available uh, to humanity, to, to the human race. It's a, it's a great luxury to be able to do that. And uh, it may have its, its difficulties, its paradoxes and so on. But uh, what an what a incredible opportunity it is for us to energize ourselves and to move forward in an evolutionary process. It, it, I'm so glad you say that because it, it also, uh, uh, while an amazing luxury, especially compared to the rest of the world, you know, who, who've yet to, 
to acquire that luxury, it also seems like, uh, I wonder what you think of this, it also seems like an increasing necessity to be able to do that as things become, uh, as you say, more, more virtual, more, the increased virtuality of things. Um, would you say that it is becoming necessary to be able to, uh, you know, to, to do that too? Well, it's hard to find a way around it. Uh, I'm, it's very possible that some of the some of the most powerful innovations will come from Africa, from places that are skipping some of the earlier landlines, let's say, and adapting to a technology that, like the smartphone, for example, is very common in Africa and a means of communication, whereas the landlines never came there, were never built there. The infrastructure was, just wasn't there. So... Uh, there may this may happen again in 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 virtuality and in, in that evolution. There may be things that unexpected uh, curves, and new and new insights and inventions may come from anywhere on the globe. We really can't predict that. Very cool. And and you mentioned sort of uh, ev- an evolutionary kind of movement here. And I'm um, w- wanted to actually end our conversation by looking toward toward the future and toward where we might go and. Um, you've kind of touched on it already, but but there's another um, interview that I read of yours where at the very end you mentioned something similar and you said uh, our evolutionary, our next evolutionary phase requires a regrounding and reinvigoration of the body-mind configuration, uh, which is such a geeky philosophical <laughs> way of, <laughs> of talking about the body-mind. <laughs> I love it. Um, and you also say we're entering a new plane of space-time. Um, ancient practices can be rebuilt for this purpose, for preparing our newly grounded virtuality. Um, could you say a little bit, because you seem to be hinting at some sort of integration or synthesis of these, of these two worlds that we were just talking about as being at odds. Um, do you see them as being possibly integrated? You know, I know you're talking about there being a long possible time, but you also are talking about not really being able to predict. So I'm um, wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, I do myself feel uh, a tension or complementary strain between my Tai Chi practice and my experiments in virtual reality. And by experiments in virtual reality, I include also my daily work on the Internet, as most of us are living with cell phones, but also because I include that in virtuality. So there is a tension there. We need to put away our digital devices. I love this movement uh, of vocational digital fasting. Um, this is a good a good sign of, of greater awareness, but that's only I think a uh, uh, it, it's not a completely satisfying uh, holistic solution. So uh, that is a holistic solution where both parts of ourselves are synergetically related and support each other and uh, continue each other's evolution, support each other's evolution. So I don't see it yet. Uh, I have a, a somewhere a, a description of a virtual Tai Chi uh, player. Um, and uh, it was something that uh, came to me after doing many, many mornings of meditation uh, early in, the, in the, the morning with, uh, in Venice, California, in a, in a Tai Chi master's uh, yard, uh, just standing for 45 minutes uh, in complete silence and uh, in a Tai Chi posture. And it occurred to me that there's some teachings that could be brought into our lives through a virtual Tai Chi 
experience. Um, I have made only some sketches about that and, and kind of dreamt about it, but it might not be the kind of thing that will actually happen. Um, but there are these uh, complementary opposites that we are living with, and they need to energize each other and produce another, just like the I Ching produces, what, 64 hexagrams. So many, many combinations and many, many possibilities. So this is, I think, what we're left with right now. And there's this energy coming from the technology sector uh, that we all live with. And many of us, you know, we make our livings uh, in the technology sector. So that is part of our toolbox, part of our kit. So like the magician in the tarot, we have these tools sitting on our table in front of us and we're looking at them and wondering, how can we make these work? How can we make these produce magic, something new, something fresh? Uh, how can they energize us and, and heal us, make us whole? Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm curious, um, given that so many of the people listening to this now are both interested in contemplation, in, in that sort of healing process, that becoming whole, um, it, that's one way of talking about the, 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 the journey of contemplative awareness. Um, and also, are like you said, working in the technology sector. Um, many of you listening are designers, programmers, people that are building things, creating things, maybe even working in the, in the very sector that we're talking about. Um, I'm wondering if you have any advice, Michael, for, uh, or words of wisdom to share with uh, the folks that are, that are working in these intersections that are actually going to be doing the hard work um, to create some of these, um, these, these tools and these, uh, these magic, uh, these new kinds of magic. Well, I just would say, don't be afraid. Follow the energy. Just follow the energy. Your practices are going to affect your work. Don't let that scare you. And there will be others who don't appreciate that. Don't let that scare you either. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.